0: Hello, and welcome to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. Uh, And Josh, we have a very special episode today, but I wanted to preface it with a bit of a confession. Um, I've had a bit of spare time over the last couple of weeks, and I've been uh, reading a fascinating book on the history of of China. It's in no way related to oncology at all, but there is a little proverb attributed to the Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu, Um, from his Tao Te Ching um, treatise. And it's the one that everybody knows, but it's very uh, relevant to our topic today, which is talking to one of our good friends, Andrew Jensen, uh, about starting oncology. We've talked a lot about the knowledge and the nuts and bolts, but that all tends to go out the window when you're actually on the ground, on the metaphorical or sometimes uh, literal front lines. It goes something like this The tree which fills the arms grew from the tiniest sprout The tower of nine stories rose from a small heap of earth The journey of a thousand miles commences with a single step And that is all the wisdom I'm going to give for this uh, episode But fortunately we don't need me for wisdom Because we have Andrew Jensen who is a very old friend of ours and a fellow oncology trainee almost consultant um very very excited to have you andrew
1: it's good to be here yeah, thanks for the introduction and the <laughs> uh, great words of wisdom michael
0: you always can look always can look to uh, ancient history for words of wisdom josh you um have a bit of a profile on uh, andrew uh, that uh, will illuminate for our audience why we've reached out to him for uh, for his repository of wisdom.
2: Thanks, young grasshopper. And yes, I do have an introduction for our lovely colleague and friend, Andrew Teflon Jensen. And I guess we also have to like, flag that this is our first episode back for the 2023 year. Thanks so much for tuning in. We hope you like it. Please subscribe, tweet, <laughs> Get- <you'll> do whatever. <laughs>
0: Get that out of the way early. I like it.
2: Okay. So let's talk about Andrew because this is about Andrew and his journey. Let's head back in time just a little bit, just a couple of years ago.
0: Not to ancient China.
2: Not that long ago. Not to the ancient proverb times, but, and I've lost my train of thought. I haven't. Let's do this. Andrew, Andrew grew up in New Zealand, right? So he's across, across the Tasman. um, And he originally did his undergraduate through the University of Auckland. After completing both his internship and first residency year in New Zealand, he made the, the intrepid journey, I guess, across the Tasman to mainland Australia, where he got a job as a young blossoming grasshopper. Blossoming grasshopper. Um, no, he, he made the journey to start a registrar training program as a basic physician trainee in regional Victoria at Barwon Health in Geelong. Little did Andrew know that he would not start there, but actually a rural town far west of Geelong called Hamilton, approximately 15,000 people, lots of cattle, lots of uh, horse and cow related injuries. And anyway, so he started his training journey there. And after completing his physician exams, he further on went to start his uh, oncology training. And this is where it gets a little bit interesting. Andrew, who started this training in New Zealand, ended up in Victoria and now New South Wales, did his first advanced training year at the Equa Three Masons in Melbourne before jumping ship to complete the rest of his training through the uh, Chris O'Brien Lifehouse. This is quite a well-known establishment in Australia, quite a fair bit of research there. It's a premier institution and also part-time through Dubbo, one of the regional hospitals. This year he has been working at Dubbo and Lifehouse and next year he'll be finishing off his training before starting a staff specialist position at dubai hospital so i think we can all give him a small round of applause at the king um the uh, oncology for the inquisitive mind team for getting a specialist job first year out as uh, finishing training but before i finish the physician's pause i think we also have to commend andrew on not only jumping three states and three, two states in New Zealand, so three different healthcare systems, he's traversed long-distance relationship after meeting his uh, now wife. And I'm going to stop gushing now, Andrew, but did you want to say hello? Yeah, thanks, Josh. <laughs> uh,
1: that, that is indeed my story. Um, it's uh, Now that you've sort of put it into words, it's been a bit of a crazy sort of journey, hasn't it? Um, I am currently in Sydney with my wife and five month old daughter. um, And uh, I still have a little bit of training left to go um, before things move on to the next step. And it's, yeah, it's, it's been a very interesting journey, not something that I had planned from the get-go, um, and we can talk a bit more about that for those who might be in a situation where they're about to start further training or or a little earlier on in their medical career, um, how things went for me and the sort of decisions I made.
0: And um, Josh, you forgot the most important thing in uh, Andrew's uh, uh, professional history, which was that he uh, survived putting up with us two uh, for two years um, throughout his, he throughout his basic physician's training. So that deserve, that deserves a um, another round of applause as well. Um, so Andrew, I guess, as we've mentioned and you mentioned, you you've moved around a lot, and this is not something that I think is uh, restricted to Australia or New Zealand trainees. You know, we hear about people in the states moving from, you know, Washington State to Florida. We hear about people in Europe going across Europe to to study and to work and train but can you tell us sort of about in in more detail about some of the pressures that that you felt some of the challenges and some of the benefits I guess of of jumping around as it relates to your professional and personal development into the uh, incredible physician and person that you are at the moment (laughs)
1: Thanks, yeah um, I, I guess What I was alluding to earlier, um, none of the big changes, the big moves that have happened so far were planned. Um, It's very much a case of seeing an opportunity and considering it and taking a leap of faith, so to speak, um, to give me the kind of experiences that I have. Um, So starting off in New Zealand, um, the training program there is pretty similar to what we're used to in Australia. Um, People don't tend to move around that much though. There are two medical schools. So there's Auckland and then there's um, the one in Dunedin. Um, so other than um, after graduation, people tend to not move around too much um, between different district health boards, um, as they call it there, or cities. And so the move uh, then from Auckland to Hamilton or, or the training program through Geelong Bowen Health, that was driven mostly by my desire to stay in the same city as my now wife. Um, so that was more important to me than um, any particular r- specific career route. Um, and in fact, um, the, my thought at the time was to take things a little slow with the training, and I'm glad I didn't, um, which I'll explain in a second. But um, I had finished my first, my resident year, um, and I decided it would be easier logistically to just be a registrar, so continue my BPT training. Um, as a BPT two in Geelong, and it turned out by doing so, I missed out all the COVID restrictions and the sort of nightmare that was um, for the BPTs with their exams. Um, but that's how I moved from Auckland to um, to Geelong, and similarly, going to Melbourne and then going, ending up in Sydney. Um, those were not that was not my career plan of choice. I was hoping to stay in one state and not move around too much. Um, but through um, various uh, circumstances, um, how things worked with trying to find a job, um, through the um, state training program, etc., I ended up going through this way. Um, so, my first year in Ipworth Freemasons, that was an accredited non core job. And I took that because I, I didn't get onto the Melbourne training program or the, the Victoria Statewide training program. Um, but through that, I made some um, great contacts. One of them in particular, um, Dr. Ben Tran, who happened to know um, a Professor Grimerson at LifeHouse. And and that link is what led me to LifeHouse. And um, through there, it um, happened to be the STP fellow position available, that was the um, also known as the Dubbo job, um, and that's how I got to know the team in Dubbo. Um, and, and through that service and that um, role, I got acquainted with the team there and um, applied and uh, uh, planning to move into a staff specialist position next year through Dubbo so um if you'd asked me five years ago you know (laughs) do you plan on being a star specialist in Dubbo for the foreseeable future my answer would be where is Dubbo (laughs) and and what's in New South Wales I had no idea um but it's 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 these um, changes in circumstances and these opportunities that present themselves and uh making those decisions you know um, back then, what what's most important to me? Well, that's that's being in the same city as my wife. And now, what's most important to me? Well, spending time with my family, my uh, little one, and making sure that I'm financially stable. <laughs> we can talk a bit more about that um, in terms of um, things beyond the advanced training program. But but having the means to um, provide for my family means that um, I probably wouldn't be taking the standard pathway that people in metropolitan, um, certainly New South Wales and Victoria would take. Um, so that's, that's my story in a nutshell.
2: One one of the things when we do these interviews that we love to, I guess, help for trainees and potentially junior specialists, or even people who haven't started their program yet. What, what inspired you to do oncology? What was the, you know, that defining moment in your junior years, maybe it predated that, maybe it was medical school that said, look, I think there'll be a career that I could love and I'd be willing to move to states, move across the Tasman, you know, do long distance, have a kid in another city, all these things, which when you're 21, 22, you don't really think about, let's be honest. You're like, oh yeah, I'll I'll sort it out. And when you get a little bit older, you're like, oh wait, as you, as you, uh, elicited it's like hey I, I want to provide for my family I want to be around my wife and my kid and I actually want to spend time with them so what was that defining moment for you?
1: Yeah I, I think like a lot of things it was a, a gradual build-up but one of the key events um, so to speak or the influencing moments was um, my time uh, in Tauranga Hospital so this was a selective in my second to last year of medical school Um, I'd spent six weeks um, in a totally different center from where I was training. And I met this oncologist by the name of Richard North. Um, Now, Richard um, was part of a two-man oncology team. He was uh, just sort of recently developing this oncology unit. And I got to spend a lot of time there, um, see his clinic, see how the way things were run. Um, And I really enjoyed the kind of patient interactions that um, Richard was having, um, just the oncology team in, in general, I found that so much more interesting than talking to people about their potassium or their blood pressure or, or you know smoking cessation. Not that that's not important, but, but the content of the discussions, the kind of the impact you can have on people's lives, um, I found that really interesting. Uh, so it was that people aspect of oncology that really drew me in. Um, now, could you have that same experience through other specialties? Absolutely. Did I though? No, <laughs> that was the experience I had, and so that that was my bias to start with. Um, and and so with those, that sort of tinted view, uh, rose tinted glasses with oncology, I um, over the next sort of few years um, got to do a little bit more oncology rotations, um, and they they had similarly positive impacts. Um, that that core patient interaction, I think, is. Um, such a unique aspect of medical oncology uh, where the patients already have the sort of uh, predisposed idea of, of what to expect. There's, there's a lot of stigma involved and so these tend to be quite, not always, but, but quite heavy conversations and I find that incredibly rewarding when, um, when you're able to make a positive impact in that scenario.
0: That's very um, profound Andrew, and, and I guess it, it's something that the, all three of us share is this importance, Josh and I have talked about it multiple times in the past, this importance of that that human aspect of oncology. It's very easy to be focused on the, the um, hazard ratios and the comparative studies and this versus that um, and can lose complete sight of what is our focus or what should be our focus, which is the patient. You mentioned, obviously, you had, before you applied for the program before you'd finish your physician's training, um, your basic physician's training, I should say, um, you had the chance to do a bit of oncology um, and had positive experiences. Um, is, is that something that you think for people who, for whatever reason, are looking ahead years into the future, trying to decide where they're going to go, um, is that something that you would recommend for trainees to try and pursue? To try and dip their toe into oncology, as it were, before they commit to it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm um, not just oncology, but I've I've had um, I've met people who've um, been had their career paths changed because of one or two particularly good rotations. And that's influenced them in a similar way. It has me. Um, similarly on the opposite end of the spectrum, some people have um, from the get go thought that they wanted to be this particular type of doctor. And uh, through that rotation found that actually it's, it wasn't their expectations didn't quite align with reality. And and so I think that experience is so important. Um, there's only so much information you can get from talking to other people, experiencing it yourself can be quite invaluable. That being said though, Um, The unit you happen to work in is not necessarily indicative of how things are for the uh, specialty as a whole. Um, You can think of horror stories, for example. If we go to one extreme, um, bad cases of bullying in certain specialties, that doesn't necessarily mean that um, the specialty as a whole um, encourages that behavior. And then on the other hand, you might have a really, really good supportive team um, which functions in a particular way, and, and again, that might not be... Um, the way things go everywhere. But uh, regardless, having some experience, I think if you can, uh, not everyone can, but if you're able to select that, um, it can be quite invaluable.
2: Andrew, we will talk about, you know, reflections potentially later in this podcast, but you did highlight one thing that, you know, working in different institutions leads to different experiences. As a trainee... And, you know, we're all under this guides where, yes, we're the advanced trainee, we're the second most senior person in any given team, but every specialist has a different methodology, way of treating someone, engaging with the facts and interacting with the research. How, you know, three different multiple sites, at least Three different major hospitals. How have you managed being, I guess, the underling or the pleb or however you want to say it? How have you managed, I guess, different consultant expectations? Given you know, there's there's plenty of ways to skin a cat. I don't know if that's the phrase. Um, just to essentially like treat someone. How have you managed with the different expectations? Because that's part of the biggest challenge of being an old oncology trainees that everyone's slightly different and what you do at one hospital might not necessarily be the same at another hospital.
1: That's so true. They, they teach you in mid school, sort of how to take a history from a patient, what, how to gauge expectations, but they don't teach you how to gauge the expectations and the, the cultural identity of the team that you're going to work in. And that's so important for your mental health <laughs> to prevent things like burnout and to, to just help you fit in with the team. I, I think, um, I've come to understand that just having a very frank discussion with people from the get-go can be very helpful. Um, that wasn't how things were in my intern year and resident year. Um, the, diff- the interns and residents would give themselves, a, uh, give each other a bit of a hand over, right? Like logistically, this is what you do for the, for the run. This is how um, so-and-so likes things done. Um, this is the time the ward round actually starts, you know, things like that, that you you hand that information over. But as you become a bit more senior, um, you might not have that opportunity. Or sometimes it's just prudent to ask the different consultants. Um, Just uh, it's communication, isn't it, having that skill. So just asking, you know, how would you like things done? Or in this scenario, um, I've seen um, such and such treatment given this way. um, but I just want to double check. Is that something we do here? Or is that something you would advise in that situation? And, and sometimes, um, the answer is pretty clear cut and you maybe don't need to go through all that ritual, but other times you can learn things that catch you unexpectedly. You are still training. You're not the expert and, um, having, um, keeping yourself in that open mindset can be very helpful. Um, has it always worked out for me? Um, (laughs) Not necessarily. Is it still helpful to get a quick handover from your predecessor? Absolutely. You should do that <laughs> if you can. Um, but uh, that, that's not a replacement, I don't think, um, for frank open discussion.
0: It is that sort of what, we're, what we call um, on this show the art of oncology, um, that sense that everybody has slightly different experiences, slightly different uh, interpretations of the same data. Um, so I completely agree with you when you're moving from place to place, getting a sense of the lay of the land locally is, um, is obviously very important. Um, but obviously we all have to start somewhere as, uh, my inspirational quote at the top of this episode said. Um, but so I, I pride myself on my inspirational qualities. Um, but, um, Andrew, I guess. Give us a sense of when you started, um, and it, uh, as the as the registrar, as the number two, um, I guess it worth then. Um, what was your first week like? Because, for my money, based on my own experience and talking to other people, that sort of first—I uh, mean, it's sort of up to the first three to six months—but that first week is frequently the hardest of any sort of new job, but a new job where you're taking a massive step up in terms of responsibilities, expected knowledge. What was your first week like?
1: Yeah, for, for me, I feel like that that sort of experience was more for my um, double lifehouse role. And I say that because the Epworth Freemasons job, my first role as an advanced trainee, was an almost entirely inpatient management position. Um, so I was very much at home with all the gen med issues that I was having to manage um, as a registrar. So the way things work there, it's a private hospital. The consultants will do their rounds as they do, and there is no resident or intern. Um, so you are there on the floor, um, liaising directly with the between the the consultants and the rest of the team, the nurses, staff, allied health, um, making the referrals, etc. But the the issues that you are dealing with on a day to day basis are mostly. Um, like your typical gen issues. I mean, you get, you know, febrile neutropenias. There's an oncology flavor to it. Um, and uh, you do manage the day therapy unit as well. Uh, but the bulk of the issues tend to be things that I was quite familiar with already. Um, so that, that was good in a way because it eased me into the issues with oncology. And I got to learn the side effects of the chemotherapy before I started charting the chemotherapy myself. So I got to get a sense of of it that way um, without necessarily being thrust right into the driver's seat, so to speak. Um, and in Dubbo and in Lifehouse, I took on uh, what's uh, more um, standard as an advanced training role in medical oncology. So the vast majority of the work is done in outpatient clinics um, with some ward cover in this case, um, when I'm on call, uh, and, and that was a, a huge leap, um, even, even after the previous year's experience. Um, so just, uh, yeah, I, I guess people don't expect you to know everything, even though you, know, you are the trainee, the consultants, they're very seasoned at, at what they do and they know what to expect from a, you know, first year as, a, as opposed to a third year. Um, you, and you do what you can, you know, you try and upskill, you read what you need to, um, you keep up to date with the the journals and you read back at the historical data um, and you get that info as we were talking about earlier um, about how certain units or certain consultants like to do things. Um, there, I, I don't think there's any easy way around. Um, you just have to put in the effort but acknowledge that um, you probably don't need to stress so much because you are going to be imperfect. That's why you're a trainee. Um, and it's just a matter of putting in that time and pick, soaking up what lessons you can as you go. Uh, cause you only have a limited time with these people who are much more experienced than you are. Um, as people have sort of said to me in the past, and I'm sure to many others, you know, as, as you, um, go from rotation to rotation or as you work between different consultants, you sort of pick up the tips and tricks you like and you don't think too hard about the, you know, aspects of their practice that don't gel as well with you. Um, and through that you you become a sort of amalgamation of, of all the experiences that you find helpful by the time you finish your training. Not only have you read up a lot, but you, you've also picked up um, a, a lot of different ways of tackling the same problem.
2: That's a, nice way to put it andrew and i think just highlighting the impact that we're all a little bit different and also the challenges of different bosses they're exactly like us they've all had different experiences and different expectations and you know they might have had a terrible first year advanced trainee and then you come along and you're better than like you're amazing but you know it's it's all these nuances of a training program that is so long and so unique it's um it's part of being in i guess really an apprenticeship almost that's what medicine is especially oncology throughout your discussion there you mentioned you did a fair bit of reading or reading up on things during your time at the Epworth masons and i assume even to today you're still reading what were the resources or what did what were your go-to I guess information points that you would use your day-to-day you know after hours if you're doing a journal club and those sorts of things how would you look it up when we were interns and I'm not sure if you guys had the same experience we were given um, a book and the book was called like doctor on call and it was for essentially like how to manage the ward it told you this person's having a heart attack this is what you do it was like 250 pages thick it was sponsored by one of the um insurance companies and it, it, i still have it to this day because it was just so helpful how did you do this andrew
1: yeah i so i i did my intern resident year in new zealand right i think i bought that book i didn't realize you guys got it for free
2: <laughs> well i i got it for free i, oh, I don't know if everyone did <laughs>
1: um so yeah there are um a number of resources that you can use, um, that I do use even today, uh, the hospitals themselves sometimes have their own resources for managing certain things. Um, and, uh, the state also has quite a number of resources that, um, you can use access for free, um, if you're state employed. So this specifically applies to New South Wales, um, trainees, but, uh, some of these do apply elsewhere. So, um, you know, things like CIAP um, is an online resource which has a link, a number of links to different um, things such as, you know, PubMed or Medline, where you can look up your journals. Um, you can go access up to date or um, the AMH, um, Medicines Handbook or MIMS. Um, so those are inv- invaluable. Uh, and you, you really feel it when you can't access it for whatever reason, and you need to quickly look something up, and you're used to um, going down that avenue. Um, I quite like EVQ. We we're talking about this before the stream, but um, EVQ, especially when you're starting out, is can be really helpful because it summarizes a lot of what you need to know. Um, it's easy to follow. It has the res- the references there, so you can check back and and do the, the reading yourself if you find um, what's inadequate, but they, they have what's called an evidence section. And you can see the justification for why um, such a protocol is on the site. Um, right. As well as uh, a lot of the questions that patients will ask are on there like, how long does this chemo take to get? And how many days do you have to take the dexamethasone? And what are the you know common side effects? And they're all listed there, it's amazing. Um, yeah, I often use it. In fact, I pretty much always just print off the patient side of things and give that to them um, as part of the, the consent process. Um, so EVQ um, is great. It's not the be all and end all, unfortunately. Um, uh, Up to date can be very helpful. Um, PubMed is very helpful. Uh, and then uh, as an advanced trainee, you get to know um, what's new and, and what's exciting through um, the different symposiums. So you know, Asco, ISMO, that sort of thing. Um, names of trials will start popping up, you know, earlier this year, things like Keynote, 522, and there'll be a checkmate um, you know, multiple times a year and, and and this and that. So you'll 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 pick things up as you go. You'll hear this from the consultants. You'll you'll hear this um, as you work. Um, but you can't just Google it, right? Because yeah, you can't access the papers that way, and that's where CIAP can be very helpful. Because um, the the state is paying for that sp- um, uh, subscription for you to access those journals.
0: Andrew, so in terms of where where you where you're at, you've you've chosen oncology as your as your uh, preferred profession. You've you've gotten through and um, had a lot of exposure, but even before you started out at Dubbo and at the Lighthouse um, if you could sort of look back and and talk to yourself before you started is there one thing or one approach or one resource that you would recommend specifically to yourself or any other hypothetical imagined trainee um, as being as being really pivotal in Survive, surviving is the wrong word, but in, in getting through those first six months, getting your feet under you, because as, as you and Josh have said in this podcast, it is like a, a um, an apprenticeship. It is like a trade. You do a lot of learning on the job, but... Uh, the Hunger Games. It's, I mean, it's, it's, like the it's Hunger not Games. quite like the Hunger Games, Josh, <laughs> in, in, in that there's, um, there's not just a trail of dead oncology trainees and only one survives after um, any uh, period of time. Anyway. Um, but the, um, is, is there any sort of advice that you would give yourself or a trainee starting out, um, that you think would be pivotal and important in guiding them through those tough first few months?
1: Yeah, this is something you don't think about, or certainly I didn't think about when I was, um, a first year advanced trainee. Um, but there are, um, Whether it be hospital-based or or statewide in the case of Victoria, um, there are journal clubs there um, where the advanced trainees would meet together, um, and they've already done the thinking for you. They've they've done the research. They've put it all into presentable slides, usually, um, and they even save it online and send it to each other with the resources attached so you don't have to go finding all the um, the references usually, and and again, it depends on your institution. Um, that was the case with the um, VMOTP or VMOTG. Uh, and so, if I could give advice to my younger self, it would be um, talk to my predecessor and find out what resources they had um, from things like the journal clubs. Easy to digest, you know, thirty to sixty minute um, timed material. Where you don't have to spend forever wafting through the NCCN or the ESMO guidelines, um, because that's not helpful. It's just too much information, um, and AVQ gives you no direction uh, as to management pathways. It just tells you what's available um, and the indications, but not necessarily what's recommended. Um, so going through that can can be a great digestible way to go through um, just basic treatment pathways. Um, you can do all the epidemiology and risk factors and, and, you know, the investigations, all that reading yourself, but getting a sense of what's first line treatment, what's second line treatment, what do we do in the adjuvant setting, um, what's considered resectable, that, that kind of thing, um, you your know, bread and butter, butter stuff that you don't want to be quickly um, rehashing just before a clinic when you see a new patient, um, that can be very helpful. And you can, you can read up the subtle side effects as you go. Um, and your consultants will no doubt quiz you on which things cause neuropathy, et cetera. Um, but if I could look back and, and get a faster sense of how different tumor streams were managed, I think that would have made things a little less stressful um, in my first six months. Um, it's still a ton of information. It's not something that you can get through um, that quickly. Um, but uh, And of course, things go, t- go out of date. Uh, not not all things, I'm thinking colorectal in particular, <laughs> not all things, but uh, that quickly. But, uh, you know, the, the space is evolving, obviously. Um, but that that's a great first step, I think.
2: The space does continually evolve. And you mentioned at the start of our talk, Andrew, Keynote 522, which was only a publication from earlier this year. So if you go back 18 months, we never used it. Maybe if you're on a trial, that's for those that want to know about that trial, it's pembrolizumab and the use of neoadjuvant triple negative breast cancer. Feel free to go back and listen to our podcast episode about that. Not the reason I brought that up, but just in case you wanted to talk about it. And I think you talked about risk, uh, not risk mitigation, but kind of stress mitigation. And there are two things with oncology that I would love you to sort of dive a little bit deeper into. One is, stress management and reducing the risk of burnout, which like many of our registrar colleagues, we're all very busy. But the difference I think that is probably oncology specific is that anxiety and that stress component is next level with our oncology patients because we deal with a lot of young, healthy people who through no fault of anyone have been diagnosed with a potentially life-limiting illness.
1: Yeah, I'm by no means an expert in... Uh, work-life balance and preventing burnout. Uh, the way I'm sort of structuring things um, at the present time, uh, uh, I guess you, you know something that is um, a part of the college requirements um, to finish advanced training are those reflections, right? I hate them so much. They take up so much time to do. They truly do, um, but. It's not, yeah, they, they really do. The reflection piece is kind of worthless, but the process is so invaluable. Um, it's not about the writing because no one should read it. Um, it's, it's about the process of reflecting and and going through and seeing, you know, how, how could we do that better? Or what are the issues there? And, and I think one of the things that I've identified is just time management. It sounds so cliche, but it's so true. Um, your, life's constantly evolving, right? Like I didn't expect a five month old daughter five years ago to happen in 2022, 2023. And here we are. And so, um, trying to juggle time with family, um, time and work commitments, um, and other commitments you might have, um, that that's something I'm still trying to optimize. Um, but I see that in some of my colleagues that, um, Maybe it's not as much of a priority for them, but it could be one way to reduce stress. Um, people, the, the, the expectation, like the rostering is made from probably decades ago, right? But the workload is only increased. Um, the number of things we're expected to do and the patients we're expected to see um, tend to be going up. Uh, and so that tends to equate an advanced trainees, not just in medical oncology, but in other fields, just spending more time in hospital, but, but trying to draw a line somewhere in the sand. Um, for me, that means trying to leave home on time where I can so I can spend time with family. Um, and the, the sacrifice there is, well, sometimes I just have to go in extra early um, to get some of that work done. But making those compromises. Um, I'd like to not work from home. Some people do. I wouldn't recommend that. I certainly couldn't juggle you know, being at home with um, all the pressures at work and bringing that home with me. Um, other things, uh, you know, again, cliche, mindfulness, very helpful. Um, you, 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 get a family member very upset and, um, and, or you have to break bad news to a patient, but you still have like 10 other people to see. Um, you can't bring that baggage with you to the next person. You need something to, you know, quickly refresh yourself for the next person. But these, these sort of tips and tricks, things that you can do on the spot, mindfulness being one of them can be very helpful. Um. So that, those are things that I've found helpful for me, I'm sure. Um, not necessarily the case for everyone to the same degree. I don't know if you guys have found ways of staving um, burnout.
0: I think a big thing as well is to, I think you sort of mentioned it, Andrew, is, is that work isn't the be all and end all um, and having things outside of work. Um, having things that you enjoy hobbies, people that you enjoy hanging out with um, and realising that there is sort of life outside of work Um, and you know focusing on your own health both mental and physical I know for a fact that if I've had a bad week and I haven't had a chance to exercise in a few days that starts to make me feel really tired and lethargic And then it sort of snowballs from there. So I think that having things uh, outside of work that are in no way related to medicine at all is a very important thing to do. Uh, Josh, I've shown you mine. Will you show me yours?
2: I'd love to show you mine. I think, I think you both hit the nail on the head. One, one thing I find and maybe that this is across the spectrum for medicine is we're all relatively high achievers. Most of us are type A personality to some extent. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't be here. But under, understanding two fundamental truths. The first is the work will never end. There will always be more research to do. There will always be more phone calls to make as Andrew said, like going home to kind of delineate the time between home and work is important. That's for everyone. You know, you you can be the specialist that emails at 4am and yes, I know people who do that and that's fine. But if that's going to impact your mental health and the things that, whether it's treating your patients might be impacted, managing your family might be impacted, your friends, your kids, then you have to kind of really take a step back because, You're going to have a long career and there's always that question about getting a job at the end of the line because you don't have enough research, you don't have a PhD, you know, you haven't impressed a boss, but you're never going to be able to do any of those things if you don't kind of take your time. For me personally, the second thing I always do is like... Michael I exercise so my wife during the pandemic decided that she was going to go to a boot camp in this local Sydney park I'm like oh that sounds just gross I, I'm not going to enjoy it And she's like Josh there's a free week come along you might you might not hate it and you know since that time I've gone religiously and even when I'm tired and even when I'm just like I've had my 70 hour week I will still go because that one thing Helps my mental health, so I can manage everything around me.
1: Spoken like true physicians, both of you. Exercise is so important.
2: <laughs> I feel we're interviewing you, Andrew, <laughs> not the other way around.
0: Andrew clearly didn't get the memo. No, um, no,
2: definitely not. Obviously,
0: all three of us can agree that the the start of the start of the oncology training. Specialty training, sort of any sort of specialty, is a bit of a gear shift in terms of what you're doing, what you're expected to do and and know. Um, Andrew, I guess drawing on your own experiences from the last few years, I guess um, having almost finished your um, your training, um, what can you speak to some sort of specific uh, situations? Um, or a specific situation that, that sticks with you um, in terms of like a, a medical emergency uh, that you've had to deal with or a concern that you've had to escalate and, and just sort of, I'm, I'm giving you sort of carte blanche here um, but just, I guess, take us through a situation um, and what you did, what the outcomes were and... And what we can take away from it. Um, I'm sort of seizing on your point about um, about the importance of reflecting here.
1: Yeah. Um, so, my first job in Australia was in Hamilton, as Josh mentioned. Um, it was it was a three month rural rotation as part of the Gen Med BPT program. Um, we don't have snakes in New Zealand. Uh There were a number of snake bites in my first years, uh, my first few months as a registrar, my first few months working in Australia, and my first few months working in um, a very regional hospital in Hamilton. There were a number of firsts lining up, um, and that was a very interesting experience. Um, There is also, um, I don't know what it's like now, but but when I a few years ago, uh, the on-call registrar. Often a first year registrar there, uh, they would be manning their ICU HD or whatever you want to call it. So there was no ICU there. And the consultants for Gen Med were, were filling in that position also. Um, so it was late at night and a snake bite rolls in through ED. Um, and of course, they need monitoring, things that I learned um, very quickly. Um, it, it was simply well, not simply at the time, um, it, it was a case of identifying, you know, clear weak points in your knowledge. And for me, that's, you know, a lot of what snake bite management is, um, making the right phone calls, upskilling yourself, um, and double checking with people more senior than you to make sure you're not missing something silly, um, and making sure you don't compromise on patient management. And, and all those snake bite cases were fine um, as, as you may or may not know, um, the majority of them, um, uh, at least the ones that I've seen, um, tend to be okay. Uh, I guess there's a bit of selection bias if you've made it to the the hospital in a regional area, um, you're probably going to do all right, but, but they did okay. Um, and there was a lot of things that I didn't know, um, had to ask for help a number of times, um, had to read up on snake species that I've never heard about before and, um, that that was um i think an experience that has uh humbled me more than i um was already um as a as a new registrar um and something that i'll always remember because um, you know you, you get as you progress in your training you get more and more comfortable with your sort of niche area right um but um i, I guess that's a trap you can fall into um you you, you come to be comfortable with this current status quo, but you don't know all there is in medicine. You certainly don't know all there is in your specialty. Um, And you'll get these curveballs. and just um, remembering, you know, how to access resources, how to call for help, um, how to be kind to patients, but also staff in times when you might not necessarily be, you know, the most comfortable um, and, you, you'll find that people help you out, and, and things. You know, you, you become a better doctor um, through that process.
2: You become a better doctor. That's a good. That's a good line. I think you know, realizing that there's always things outside our scope. Doesn't matter how specialized you become and how professorial you are. There's always something that you won't know, and there's always something that you will have to ask and see whether someone else might be able to help you. You've given some absolutely incredible words of wisdom, Andrew. And while Michael and I are pursuing a fellowship, potentially delaying starting in the the real world or the big bad world, as some might put it, you're... Sticking our heads in the sand. Sticking our heads in the death sand as deep as it will go. You've made the leap of accepting a job as a... really a general oncology specialist, there is nothing harder, or I suspect it's going to be a general oncology job, but I'm happy to be corrected. I'd love you to kind of talk through your process of taking the opportunity in Dubbo, you know, pursuing, I guess, that career pathway, um, as opposed to drug development or PhD or doing a fellowship in the city. And I think it'd be really Useful because while in my first year, I I didn't think about doing a PhD or even doing a job. I'm like, I've got plenty of time. I'm getting to a point where I'm heading to the end of the train line and there's a bit of a cliff there. And I'm like, oh, that's fun. You know, none of the options appear wonderful. But tell us about your decision making and how you came to that.
1: Yeah. uh, I don't know if you can hear the crying baby in the background. (laughs) So, My family has, like, is a big priority, um, crying and all. The the problem, well, not so much problem, but the way things are in metropolitan cities um, in Victoria, New South Wales, as I understand it, is that to get a consultant position in the big cities, Sydney and Melbourne, you need to um, have a CV that, kind of fits with what other people are doing. Um, and you need to, um, it can be helpful also to have spent some time working in the department. Um, so that may mean for most people doing a PhD, um, and that may mean for most people locoming um, here and there to pick up some hours to pay the bills, but also to get to know the department you may or may not soon work in. That is not a pathway that I felt was conducive to a stable living environment for a young family. Um, Now I'm clearly not the first person to have, to raise a newborn um, as a medical oncology AT fellow, you know, hopefully soon to be junior consultant. But the way um, I wanted things was a little bit more stable than how things have been in years past through my training. And I felt that going working regionally ticked a lot of boxes for me. It was a department that I knew and was comfortable with and I had fun working in, um, it was an environment that I felt was, would be conducive to my primary goal, which is, um, being the supporter, um, good husband and good father, um, of my family. Um, and it, it wasn't, um, and, and yes, financially viable for us. Because I didn't want my wife to have to work full time and myself working full time, meaning um, the baby would have to be, you know, mostly supervised at daycare. Um, that, that's not something that I um, wanted. Uh, and we don't have immediate family in Australia. They're, they're back in New Zealand. So we don't have the sort of supports that um, other people might um, have the privilege of. Um, so uh, that uh, is family was a big thing for me. Um, otherwise i might be tempted to the more now standard pathway fellowship onto phd um, with some locoming sprinkled in and then more locoming and then picking up um f- part-time equivalents as you go until you have some semblance of you know 1.0 or something similar while continuing phd work and research on the side That that's a very common story not everyone's but um it's a, it's a common scenario for people to be in, um, in this day and age, I feel. Um, and, yeah, you know, great for them. Um, I think it, it can be incredibly rewarding, um, just uh, not what I had in mind.
0: So I guess tailoring your path forward to your priorities and your, uh, your own personal situation is of utmost importance, as you've clearly trailblazed there, Andrew.
1: Yeah, but I mean, at the same time, um, I didn't do the STP fellow position thinking, oh, I'm going to get some experience in double before I apply for a, for a consultant position. Not at all. That, that STP, that double fellow job, um, was what I um, sort of had the opportunity to apply for. Um, after the job in Melbourne. So I had no idea this was going to work out this way. I think it's also a case of seeing what opportunities there are available um, and deciding for yourself if that's conducive to the kind of future you're hoping for, while keeping in mind that the future you hope for, um, you know, no one, uh, oncologists especially um, know very well, we're not very good at predicting the future um so you just in some sense plan the best you can but also take things as they come and see the opportunities um, for what they are opportunities which you may or may not decide to take and I've decided to take a few
2: well as as unconventional as you might perceive them Andrew I think you've done uh, I think Mark and I both believe and that's the reason we wanted to interview you've done such an incredible job of being like hey this is an opportunity let's take it and see where it leads and it's it sounds like it's going to or is almost paying dividends yeah i'm
1: i'm incredibly grateful for my wife for um being strung along (laughs) on this journey so far (laughs) (laughs) we 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 sort of compromised um when i came over to australia and then she's had to make a lot of career decisions on my behalf to help facilitate my um career progression so i'm I'm very grateful for her Um,
2: yeah. Behind every great oncologist, there's an even greater <laughs> and suffering partner, to, to kind of to, to tell the story.
0: Uh, I think that is the the one truth, the the one inalienable truth that we've ever said on this podcast. The only one. <laughs> yeah, so true. Well, look, Andrew, thank you so much. We are approaching the hour mark, and as you said, 30 to 60 minutes is really the sweet spot for digestible information. I think that um, people listening to this, uh, more so than usual, because it's uh, not just been me and Josh rambling about two studies for an hour at a time, um, Have there's a lot here based on your experience that people can take away, people can apply not just to oncologists, but uh, medical specialists in, in other areas, um, and just sort of people in general. There are a lot of um, pearls of wisdom that you've provided. So thank you so much for gracing our podcast with your presence.
2: Yeah, it's been it's been a real pleasure, Andrew. Always lovely to catch up. Thanks for having me, guys. It's been good.
0: So join us next time where we will be uh, back resuming our usual uh, programming. I think that's the word, that's the phrase, Josh. Um, and... I've completely lost track of what we'll be talking about. We'll be talking about something oncological, um, but... I think I think we'll talk
2: about semiflumab and we'll talk about hedgehog inhibitors. Sounds good. Skin cancer, guys. Not, non-melanoma to skin cancer.
0: I, I think that is um, something that I certainly know very little about, so I'll be looking forward to examining it further. We'll see you in a week. Thanks for listening.